grab a Bible. If you don't have one with you, pull one from the uh, seat in front of you or nearby. We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 2. And this morning, I'm only going to preach on one sentence out of Galatians chapter 2. One sentence. It's actually more than one sentence in our English text, but it's one sentence as Paul uh, penned the book of Galatians. Before we do that, let me lead us in prayer. Father, I ask you this morning that your Holy Spirit would take the living Word of God and would apply it to our hearts so that the living Word brings life to our souls. Father, I pray today that you would take the, uh, the foolishness of preaching and that you would use it for your intended purposes this morning, that we might see Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, and, and that we might understand even better our justification. Father, a fancy theological word, but, but Father, I pray that we might understand what Jesus has done for us today. Lord, I, I pray that your spirit would apply the word would allow my heart to communicate the things that you've touched it with to your people in such a way that we leave here loving you all the more. Just ask for your blessings on the preaching and teaching of the word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text is, is Galatians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. The Apostle Paul pens these words and and he is speaking to the church at Galatia because there are issues there. And he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Maybe those thoughts, those ideas seem uh, circular and seem a little convoluted to you this morning. Lord willing, we will unpack that and, and you'll understand this better. You know, the, the writer to the Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, says this. For it is appointed for man once to die, and after death comes judgment. Because of that very truth, because we all face death and because after death we know that judgment comes, there is, is one single question, one important question for every person to answer. And that question is a very simple question this morning, and I want to put it to you as directly and as clearly as I possibly can. And the question is simply this, how can I be right with God? What does it take for me, for Richard Burgett, to be right with the living God? 
Some people suppress their, their conscience, you know, and, and when their hearts remind them of the reality of death and judgment, they, they, they kind of try to shove those ideas aside and, and don't want to think about those things. And they somehow believe that by denying death or by di- denying the existence of God or, or by di- denying those things that, that uh, uh, we don't have to deal with them. Other people will labor to convince themselves that, that there's just no existence after death, you know, that this, is, this life is all there is, and after this life, you're done. You know, there are plenty of people who uh, live that way and who seek to, to view life that way, but those attempts go against the grain and the testimony of every man's heart. Because all of us have been created in the image of God. And it's like, it's like dragging fingernails across a chalkboard. It is so contrary uh, to what we know. All men possess immortal souls. Our, our, our whole being testifies that there is more than just this present life. We know that. So the persistent questions stand what do I do about the life to come? How can I be holy before a righteous God? What am I going to do when I'm faced with the reality of my mortality and the fact that I have an immortal soul? How will those things play out? So there's some who simply deal with it by suppression. There's another group or category of us who try to answer that question, how can I be right with God? But we answer it in an incorrect way. Lots of folks answer it this way. Some people will say, well, as long as I sincerely seek God and, 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 and whoever he might be and, and, and however he calls me, then, then I know it'll all be all right. As long as I'm sincere, as long as I'm honest, then God will love me and God will forgive me and, and God is a God of love. And, or they say, if, if I do good to my neighbor, you know, if I, if I do enough good stuff, enough good deeds, then, then, then they'll outweigh my, my sin, my bad deeds, and, and everything between me and God will be right, you know. We'll kind of balance the scales. It'll be okay. I'm okay, you're okay. Came out in the 60s, I think. Still haunts us today. Terrible theology. Other people say, well, you know what? I'm just trusting, you know, my grandfather taught Sunday school at New Hope Presbyterian Church. And I'm counting on my grandfather. And, you know, uh, my grandmother was uh, in the choir at uh, the church where she was. And and she trusted Jesus. And I love my grandmother. And so I'm counting on my grandmother's faith to to bring me into uh, communion with God, into fellowship with God. I'm I'm leaning on those kinds of things, my family relationships. Listen, I ministered, I grew up in Mississippi, okay? You've got to know something about Southerners. The most important discussion that a Southerner will have with you when they meet you first is the conversation that goes, or that centers around the question, who do you know? Because Southerners are the quintessential networkers, okay? They want to know who you're related to and how you're related to them. And it doesn't matter if Robert E. Lee is your third cousin twice removed by your granddaddy's aunt. You know, it doesn't matter if you can trace your roots back somehow to somebody 
then you've got a relationship. And so Southerners are all about that idea. Well, you know, my, my daddy was the superintendent of Sunday school. Or my great-granddaddy preached at the Primitive Baptist Church down by uh, Town Creek or wherever or whatever. And we count on those kind of relationships. Now, I ministered in Baltimore for a little while. And Baltimore is one of those places that's neither north nor south. Actually, it's probably more north than it is south. People used to say to me there all the time, you're not from around here, are you? (laughs) I never figured that out. I never... Their thinking was a little different. They were more of the mindset of, oh, I'll do enough good things. Or, you know, when we die, we all go to heaven. I can't tell you how many funeral services that I went to that were not funerals that I did where basically I heard a preacher of the gospel in essence say, death, goes, death leads to heaven. Let me tell you something. The Apostle Paul, the scriptures do not teach that. You don't just die to get to heaven. Oh, for the believer, yes, indeed. That is the way we go to heaven. And, and I'm praying, frankly, that God will come, that Jesus will come in power and glory, and that I won't even have to face death before I go to heaven. But if I have to face death, I'm okay with that. But we just don't die and automatically go to heaven. So there are lots of people who have answered that question, how can a person be right with God incorrectly? Paul gives us the only right answer. It's either, it's either 100% or it's a zero. It's either an A plus or an F minus. Never had an F minus. Should be a goal in my life to get an F minus on something. How can, a, not on this matter, how can a person be right with God? So our text this morning, as we dig into our text this morning, you need to understand something. And David talked about this with us last week, and, and I think David's sermon was very helpful and, and is something um, good, good for me to build on this week, this morning. Peter, says, Peter um, acted hypocritically. Peter's hypocrisy called for an open, open rebuke from the Apostle Paul because Peter had let his life get out of step with what the gospel really is. He made a, he made a mistake. Peter, Peter made a decision that was not a good decision. If you look at chapter 2, if you look at the, the passage above, starting in verse 11, where we have the, the text that talks about uh, Paul opposing Peter, uh, you'll see what happened there. The situation in Antioch um, and the crisis at Galatia required that Paul expound the truth of the gospel with great clarity so that nobody could miss it. And that's what he does here in verses 15 and 16 in one of the best summations of the doctrine of justification you will find anywhere. It is a one-sentence summary of the truth of the gospel. It is justification in a nutshell. What is justification? Justification is a legal act of God whereby God declares us righteous before himself. Okay? Just as if I never sinned is the way we teach it to children, right? Right? 
when we are justified, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God no longer sees our sin. He sees us just as if I never sinned. Paul declares the doctrine of justification by faith in this one Greek sentence in a beautiful way. Now, our English version uh, breaks it down into two. I think it does. Yes, uh, I don't see a period. I guess it didn't. Um, They used the uh, semicolon there between 15 and 16. Some of the English versions do put it in two sentences because I remember studying that this week. At any rate, one sentence in the Greek. What Paul says to Peter, he said it in Antioch. He repeats to the Galatians because he wants them to hear the truth. These verses are not just for the Galatians, though. These verses are not just something that the church at Galatia needed to know because Peter had um, behaved badly. These are truths that you and I need to hang our lives on. This is the sum of the whole matter. Paul basically says life and joy and peace and and the endless hope for for happiness uh, uh, tomorrow stems and, and, and it comes from a relationship with the living God. We would do well to ask ourselves some questions this morning. Do you revel? Do do you celebrate that you have been born again? Do you you revel in that truth of the gospel that these verses teach us here? Is the foundation of your hope for the future found right here in Galatians 2, 15 and 16? It ought to be. Is this where we go? Is this truth of of our salvation the place you go when you've blown it? You know what I mean? When you've really blown it? When life is hard and you're wondering what the next step will be is the truth of justification the truth of your conversion the truth of your being right with christ and that nothing can separate you from his love is that the truth you go back to is that the thing you remind yourself of when you're struggling with life how does this truth shape what you think about other religions How does that reality shape your outlook on the world and on people and on eternity? When you look at other people, when you listen to the news, how does the truth of the gospel impact that for you? You see, the the doctrine of justification by faith alone is a doctrine that is is as far-reaching as any other doctrine in the Scriptures. It impacts everything that we know and that we think. The truth of the gospel in these two verses is maybe best unpacked with three little simple questions. And this morning I want to put those questions to you one at a time um, because I think these, and and please know, these questions are just just a way for me to help us delve into the depths of uh, the truth of the gospel. It's what we need, one thing we all need to do is ask ourselves, How firm is our handle on the truth of the gospel? Look at verse 15 of our text, the first part of it. Paul says what? He says, we ourselves, myself, Paul, Peter, are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. 
The first question is, is pretty simple and straightforward, and it's not really intended to be a trick question this morning, even though sometimes people think it's uh, um, tricky to sort out. The question is this, and it comes out of these verses. The question is, are we relying on who we are or what we've done for our right standing with God? What is the ground of your justification? Where, where is your foundation? What is your hope? Where is the root? What are we relying on? What are we trusting on for our standing before God? So what does verse 15 mean? Well, I think David did a great job with that last week. Let me, let me quickly explain it this way. The Apostle Paul was really upset with Peter because Peter had, um, had, had denied the gospel in a very tangible way before the church in Galatia, and, or in Antioch. And, and Peter, well, you need to understand, you need to understand, I guess, uh, the dietary um, uh, rules kind of of Judaism, I think, to understand what the real root of the problem was, okay? There are a few things about Jewish dining habits that you need to know. For the Jews, eating, dining, sitting together at a meal was a cultural event, okay? It was, it was an important time. It was, it was a cult, cultural event for them. What they ate, with whom they ate, uh, says something about who they are. And so for the Jews, mealtimes were very special. Sometimes certain people uh, would refuse to eat with other people because of who they were. The Jew would not, could not eat with a Gentile. The Jew considered the Gentile, the non-Jewish person, a pagan, a dog, and literally would not lower themselves to eat with them. One of the reasons um, that they did that is because... Uh, Basically, um, they, they, viewed, they viewed Gentiles in racial overtones. They, they looked at the Gentiles and said they are a lower race, and we will have nothing to do with this lower race. So some of the issue that Peter and Paul uh, are confront, or that Paul confronts Peter with here, has racial overtones in it. But it's more than just simple racism, if you will. And racism is bad enough. In keeping with the Old Testament food laws, one of the ways the Jews showed, demonstrated to the world that they belonged to God, was by keeping kosher, right? You know the story. The, uh, in Judaism, table fellowship means fellowship before God uh, for, all, for the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing uh, which the master of the home has spoken over the broken bread. Joachim Jeremias, historian of the early church. Eating with someone meant something to the Jewish people. Remember the way the people reacted when Jesus ate with the uh, sinners and tax collectors? They were not happy that he was dining with them, breaking bread with them. <clears throat> they created a crucial problem for the church. So Jewish men and women were coming to love and trust Jesus Christ for their salvation. 
And they were coming into the church in Galatia. Gentile men and women were beginning to love and trust Jesus Christ for their salvation. And they too were coming into the church at Galatia. And at the Jerusalem Council, they, they had settled the theological question about how Gentiles could be saved. They're saved by grace through faith in Christ, the same way Jews are. And they had decided that the Jews could continue to practice the, the uh, rituals of Judaism, the Old Testament rituals of circumcision and eating kosher if they chose to do so. They, they had that privilege and that, that honor to do that. And they also had said the Gentiles could continue to be Gentiles, could continue to, to live uh, with uh, their dietary uh, freedoms that, that they enjoyed. And that it was all good, but they hadn't worked out the practicalities of that. So when they had a family night supper at the church, at New Hope Presbyterian Church in Galatia, when they met in the fellowship hall in there to break bread together, what happened? The Jews would sit over here and the Gentiles would sit over there. They wouldn't mix. Now Peter, being a good theologian that Peter was, Understood that in his head. Understood that, that it was perfectly fine. That they, should, that they should have fellowship together. And so Peter was eating with the Gentiles. And that's a good thing. He, he, he sat down with them. And he didn't care if their food had been sacrificed in some other place. It, 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 that wasn't a problem for him. He didn't feel like he had to keep kosher. But there were a group of scrupulous Jewish Christians who came in to check out how things were going at the church of Galatia. And when Peter realized that those more scrupulous Jewish people had come in to spy out their freedom, Peter separated himself from the Gentiles. And he went over and ate with the Jews. And he looked like a good Jew. And Paul says, that's hypocrisy. That's wrong. That denies the truth of the gospel that we are all justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul rebuked Peter for that. And I think David's right. I don't think it was that Paul got in, as David said, in, in uh, Peter's grill. He didn't get in his face. He didn't pull his face mask up to him and say, Peter, you listen to me. But I think Paul rebuked him with strong enough words that Peter understood what was happening. Those extremists, they were, had probably been former uh, Pharisees in all likelihood. They were very traditional in their faith. They followed Moses' rituals, uh, even circumcision. And they noticed how lax Peter was with the old traditions, how he was practically eating like a pagan, like a Gentile, not a Jew. Verse 14 of the text of chapter 2. There he was sitting down to have table fellowship with unwashed, uncircumcised heathens. It might as well have been that Peter went all the way and he had a roasted pig with the singles fellowship. I mean, it was that bad to the Jews. They were offended. The pressure group put Peter in an awkward situation and he found himself fearing 
the circumcision party. Verse 12 of Galatians 2. He knew how traditional they were. He knew how um, they, 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 they functioned, and he didn't want to offend them. But he denied the gospel in his compromise. What Peter did was not so much a matter of principle. It was actually another case of cowardice. I love Peter because Peter's my guy. <laughs> his DNA is in my DNA, and there's just no doubt about it. But he was wrong. Peter's poor example ought to teach us to stick up for the gospel, to stand up for the gospel. It, it was his firm conviction that salvation came by grace through faith and not by the law. He not only believed that the Gentiles could be first-class Christians, he lived that way and demonstrated it, but still he compromised. He retreated from his former position. Actually, the words in the Greek text say he pulled back from the Gentiles. The word pulled back in the, in the original Greek is a hyperstellin. It's, it's sometimes used like a military withdrawal. It is, it is a genuine withdrawal. It is pulling back. He pulled back. And in doing that, he compromised the gospel. When push came to shove, he didn't stand his ground for the truth that all Christians are saved by the same grace, and it takes courage to stand for the gospel. I think David's point last week, one of David's point was, how are you standing for the gospel? When you're on the plane and the person sitting next to you is, is weeping and they say to you they have no hope, do you talk to them about the hope of the gospel? When you encounter someone who you know knows not the Savior, do you stand up for the gospel or are you a shrinking violent? When you are in the workplace and you have the opportunity to speak up for Jesus Christ, do you speak up? Or do you try to fade into the background to not be noticed and to fly under the radar and to slip in and slip out? Are you the stealth bomber of Christianity? Or do you stand up for the gospel? Frankly, it was natural for the Jews to presume on God's grace and his favor uh, because of who they were. They had been God's chosen people. God had led them through the wilderness. God had, had set them apart from the other nations. You know the whole Old Testament history of the Jews. Uh, the temptation for the Jewish people had always been to presume upon God's grace because they had the law. They had God's law. God had given them the Ten Commandments scribed on the, on the tablets that Moses brought down off of Mount Sinai. They had the law, the Old Testament, and all of it. They were proud. They had always, always been God's favored people. They'd always been able to say what Peter's and, Peter and others were saying in Antioch. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We're special. They were presuming. I think we would do well to remind ourselves of who we are in ourselves. 
The Apostle Paul reminds us about who we are in Christ. He, he reminded the Corinthians, you know, just a few months ago we were walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul reminded the Corinthian church who they were. Let me just quote 9 to 11 out of that chapter for you. He warned them that neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he adds, he doesn't hesitate to add it, right behind it, and such were some of you. Think back about the day before you knew Jesus. Who were you? Outside of Jesus Christ, who were you? It was especially good for the Corinthians to be reminded, and it's especially good for us. We're Christians by the re by rebirth. By the work of the Holy Spirit changing our lives and our hearts. By, by the work of the Holy Spirit changing our status from those who are, who are in rebellion against the living God to those who are loved by him and drawn into fellowship with him. We cannot presume. Just like the truth of the gospel pokes a hole in our presumption too. It pokes that hole and it lets all the air out of all of our inflated self-righteousness. Self-righteousness itself, I think, feeds itself on having a leg up on others because of our background and our experience. Oh, goodness. Don't we do that? We're proud of what we've accomplished, and there should be some pride in what we've been able to do. But do we use it as a sledgehammer against other people? Are we smug? Are we full of self-satisfaction? Those are questions that you and I need to ask for us. Our Lord Jesus Christ had some pretty sharp things to say about those who rested on their own self-righteousness, didn't he? He never let the Pharisees off the hook, did he? Let's not be today's Pharisees. You know, as Presbyterians, as PCA Church and everything i think it's easy for us to be kind of self-righteous we don't have self-righteousness in the sense that some of our brothers do you know who who come from another background and and who don't smoke or chew or dance or you know those kind of things but what kind of self-righteousness do we have well we're people who love the word we're people who have the Westminster Confession and the Catechisms and the Heidelberg and, and we, we uh, study systematic theology and we talk about the deeper things of uh, the faith and those kind of things and we can kind of get prideful, can't we? Our pride is only in the fact that God has called us out of darkness into his light by justifying us by his grace. Well, let me make the second point this morning. Let's get into verse, the first part of verse 16. Once we come to terms with that first question about presumption, the second question really naturally just kind of confronts us. Are we convinced that Christ's death is the only reliable basis for our right standing before God? 
It's the only thing that we can count on. It's the only thing that you can bank on. Despite the fact that Paul was a Jew by birth and not a Gentile sinner, he still has come to recognize that that's the only way he has a right standing before God. Paul understands that about himself. It's not his heritage. It's not his observance of the law. It's not the way he kept the the rituals of the Old Testament Jew. It has nothing to do with anything Paul himself has done. Wow, we need to get that lesson. It has everything to do with what Christ has done. Christ took your record of unrighteousness on himself. He was perfect, he was sinless, he was holy, and he took your unrighteous record upon himself so that he could die in your place. He became your substitute, and he gave you his perfect, righteous record. It is indeed a transfer of righteousness that is yours and mine, that gives us the standing that we have. It's, it's not anything that we have merited, that we have earned, that we have done, that we could accomplish. It is only by grace. In chapter 2, verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. I, I prefer the way the ESV footnotes Uh, verse 16 to the way uh, they have it in the text here and I want to just take a second and if you'll if you'll bear with me I'll try to explain that Uh, the second part of the verse through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ the ESV in their footnote uh, acknowledges that that there's a variable translation an alternate uh, alternative uh, translation that's viable okay Uh, out of the original Greek uh, expression um, and, and, and I, I go with this the way it's put here because I think it, it talks about the basis of our justification, not the means of our justification. Now, maybe that's too technical. Maybe that's more than you, you wanted to know. But I think that he deals with the, um, uh, in the next clause, he deals with uh, the means of our justification. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus Uh, He deals with that in the next clause, but in this clause, he talks about the basis of our justification. The basis of our justification. He's trying to contrast, okay? Here's the upshot. He's contrasting two competing foundations for our justification. Is it going to be the law with works as the basis, or is it, on the other hand, going to be the provision of Jesus Christ? Is it going to be the good things that you do by obeying God, by doing the things that that you know a morally right and and holy person would do, or is it going to be based, is your salvation going to be based solely on what Jesus Christ has done for you? Now, Paul is not encouraging us to not be moral and upright and keepers of the law. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about what is, the, what is the root, what is the foundation upon which we will live. You see, through Paul's encounter with the risen Christ, he understood that righteousness and justification don't come from doing stuff, from keeping the law. They don't come from that. In fact, in next week's sermon, we're going to 
hit my favorite verse. For I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Do you hear the substitutionary atonement of Jesus for sinners like you and me in that verse? What is the basis of your salvation? It's what Jesus has done. It's not even my deciding that I would put my faith in Jesus. I didn't have the power to do that, guys, because I was dead in my sin, and dead people do nothing for themselves. Christ gave me everything that I need for my salvation. His Holy Spirit changed my heart from death to life so that I would trust Jesus. It is nothing that I do. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. It is all of God's grace from start to finish. It is not by works. Justification, right standing before God, but appearing just as if I have never sinned, cannot come by works. Works of the law, good deeds, whatever we may want to apply to it. Other religions try to, to achieve heaven, ultimate bliss, whatever, however they define it, by scaling God's throne through human effort. Only the Bible says we don't get to God that way. Christianity says that is not how we get to God. Luther explained it this way. He said if we try to merit grace by works we're simply trying to placate god with our sin boy they he just burst my balloon there didn't he any good thing that i do no matter how good it is is tainted with sin and cannot stand before holy god that balloon is burst luther meant even our best works are tainted with evil motives by works of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 16, total depravity extends to all humanity. It's part of our DNA. You know, when you play the who do you know in the South, you probably ought to start with Adam, because I got his DNA. It impacts everything, every decision in my heart and my life. I'm still tainted with Adam's spiritual DNA, and I'm a sinner in need of grace. Even after I have come to trust Jesus and, and begun to follow and, and rest in Christ alone for my salvation, I'm still a sinner in need of grace day after day after day. Our justification is a one-time act where we are declared righteous, but it is an ongoing thing that we need to come back to over and over again and remember over and over again where our foundation lies. It lies in Jesus Christ. Becoming a Christian means that you admit that you cannot be saved by the good things you do. The Galatians have been tempted. They've been tempted to gain favor by getting circumcised, actually, in the church at Galatia. Think about that. Think about that. That was no longer a temptation for most of us who are believers. But we look to other things to earn our salvation, don't we? 
Oh, going to church, reading the Bible, taking communion, putting an offering in the offering plate, giving to charity. Doing those things will never get us to heaven. Not even, not even becoming a martyr for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's not going to get you there. There's no way to be made right with God except through faith in Jesus Christ. Another quote from Luther. The true meaning of Christianity is this, that a man first acknowledged through the law that he is a sinner for uh, whom it is impossible to perform any good work. If you want to be saved, your salvation does not come by works, but God has sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. He was crucified and died for you and bore your sins in his body. Luther's just reciting the gospel there. You can take that statement from Luther and you can share that statement with someone else and, and work through that with them and share the gospel out of that very statement. I would, take you, I would encourage you to take them to the scriptures as well. One last point this morning. Comes out of the last half of verse 16, 16b. We also have believed. I think because there's only one provision that counts, there's only one response that makes sense, and it's a response of faith. And I think that that response of faith leads to a third question. Are we trusting Jesus Christ alone for our right standing before God? Are we trusting him alone? It's one of the membership vows. Do you receive and rest on Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel? Question number one, membership in the PCA. Notice that we didn't ask the question about what your theology is. We said, do you receive and rest on Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel? Look at the logic of Paul's train of thought. He knows the only provision that counts is the faithfulness of God's Son to death. So, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by the provision of Christ and not the provision of the law. Rather than relying on the law with its works, Paul has run to Jesus for salvation from sin and from his condemnation. I've, I've intentionally tried to frame this third question in terms of trusting or resting in Christ instead of simply believing. Because I think the idea of faith and believing in our world is kind of fouled up. I think there are a lot of people who would say, oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, I have faith. You know, and, and sometimes we just simply have faith in faith. Sometimes we just, we have hope and so we believe we have hope. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about making our foundation, making our, our standing, our place in terms of trusting Jesus alone for salvation. Trusting him. It's the illustration of the chair. You know, you've heard the illustration of the chair, I'm sure, haven't you? You can look at that chair and you can, you can believe that that's a chair. Okay, I, I believe that's a chair. It's got four legs, it's got a back, it's got a seat, it's got arms, it's good, it looks like a chair. 
Looks like it might be more comfortable than the chairs you're sitting in. But I don't show that I trust that chair until what? Until I sit in that rascal. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fella. And so when I sit down in a chair like this, let's put in a lot of faith in that chair. I'm resting in that chair. I'm not going to sit in it. <laughs> Just couldn't resist that. I think we need to embrace the truth of the gospel, that, and we ought to live in light of the truth of the gospel, that it is faith in Jesus Christ. It is trusting in Christ alone. And, and we need to, to quit thinking fuzzily about what faith is. Are you sitting in the arms of Jesus? Are you resting on his salvation, on the things that he's done for you, for your hope? Are you hoping in something else? We need to never veer off from some other truth, but to remember always the, the truth and the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. It was the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. It was the reality of the misery of the sinner and, and of the mercy of God that has changed us. It is faith in Christ alone. And look, that's great news. That is such good news, it's shocking. It, it, and it, it, it ought to shock us because it's foreign to our way of thinking. We always think you've got to merit, you've got to earn it, you've got to do something to be good enough don't we? I mean, we're taught that in school. You've got to make good grades. You've got to do well. We're taught that in sports. You get out on the field out there, and you've got to press hard. You've got to exercise. You've got to do the drills. You've got to do the, you know, you've got to run the plays. You've got to show excellence here so that you can get ahead. You've done that in business. You've done, you've poured your energies and your life into, into your career, into being the top in your field. And you work hard at it. Christianity is counterintuitive. The only reason we work hard as believers is because we're living in praise to God for what he's done. We're not trying to merit our salvation. We're not trying to earn our position. We're trying to say to God, God, your grace is so overwhelming that I've got to give everything I've got to you. The pastor ought to never have to talk to you about tithing or about using your gifts because we all ought to be so overwhelmed with the love of Jesus Christ that we are willing to give our money, to give our time, our talents, our energy, to give all that we have back to the praise of God for what he has done in redeeming us. That's just the simple truth, and that is a shocking reality in our world. It's counterintuitive. It's not ultimately about us. And that's what's counterintuitive, isn't it? It's not about you. It's ultimately about God's provision in Jesus Christ. It's about his blood and righteousness and our need for a Savior. Justification in a nutshell. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed. I know whom I have believed. Do you? Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, thank you that salvation is from stem to stern. 
all about Jesus. Not about who we are, not about what we've done, not about what we bring to the table in any way, shape, or form, but that we have been justified by grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you enable us to share that message? Would you enable us to live in light of that message day after day? Oh, Father God, would you glorify yourself in us? And may our lives be lived as a gift back to you out of thankfulness. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.